This is a Federal News Network podcast. The continuous diagnostics and mitigation program turned 10 years old last month. And what a long, strange trip it's been for CDM. As agencies move towards zero trust and face an ever-changing threat landscape, CDM has hit stride. In his weekly Reporter's Notebook, executive editor Jason Miller writes about where the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency is taking this program next. And Jason, just quickly review what it is and where is it going. Just in case if folks have maybe been not paying attention to cybersecurity the last decade, if you remember, CDM was launched in 2012. They made 17 awards to companies and had a total contract value of about $6 billion. And back then, Tom, if you remember, we were all very excited. $6 billion, tons of cybersecurity. This is an idea barred from the State Department to set up a continuous monitoring and alerting system for hardware and software. Now, DHS updated the program in 2017 with some lessons learned. They kind of changed their current approach, focusing on using systems integrators to help these groups of agencies that had similar needs or were in similar places around cybersecurity to implement a group of a set of approved products. Now, since 2017, agencies have been implementing tools and capabilities to get more visibility in their networks through asset and identity and data security and network protection management tools. CIS has also developed a dashboard at both the agency level and across government-wide to really get a really good picture that CISA they can use. And, of course, they have a shared services platform for small and micro agencies. And Congress has given CISA hundreds of millions of dollars for CDM. I mean, Congress really likes CISA. Even the Republicans want to make it a $5 billion agency. What is the status of the program now, and what's it actually doing with respect to agency cybersecurity? You're absolutely right. Congress has been unusually supportive of CDN and CISA more broadly, as you said. And, and Tom, actually, I found some research that CISA actually put out. Since 2012, DHS has received more than $2.36 billion for CDM efforts and hopes to receive another $4 billion through 2033 to continue to run and evolve the program. So... The question is, all right, lots of money, $6 billion, what do we get? Well, CISA now says the foundation for better, more proactive cyber defense is really coming into place. Richard Grabowski is the deputy CDM program manager. He describes some of the work CISA has led over the past year plus. So everything that we are doing over the last 16 months and in the near term are going to be about building that collaborative defensive posture. So you see what we see. We can make very helpful recommendations that you can triage and take back at machine data speed. We talked about the dashboards and object-level data and what we, the investments we've made in Elasticsearch and those kind of technologies, EDR rollouts, helping you get in front of mitigation, coverage, making sure that every, you know, all shadow IT has some amount of spotlight on it, right? Um, and then bringing into other asset classes like mobile and using our policy uh, levers through BOD and automation and working with OMB on physical automation. Those are all things collectively that I think we can do to drive progress to a desired state that I'm hoping you all are with us on. You heard Grabowski mention the dashboard, and this is where CISA has really made some of the biggest gains over the last year. Judy Baltensenberger is the project manager for the CDM dashboard at CISA. She describes the current state of the dashboard, especially around the binding operational directives that CISA put out over the last year to agencies, such as around solar winds and Log4j cyber incidents. So we were able to share with them what CDM data is actually available and what kind of automation reporting can we feasibly do. I don't think people realize how expansive the dashboard is. We have about 89 dashboards deployed, 78 of them reporting. So we do have a large amount of coverage across the network now. Again, Judy Baltetzenberger, the project manager for the CDM dashboard at CISA. 
All right. So as you mentioned, Jason, we are 10 years into CDM. And I remember that genesis at the State Department. Everyone thought it was the greatest thing. I guess it turned out to be. What's next? There's plenty of new capabilities coming to CDM uh, to improve, again, this proactive collaborative defense posture. Baltzenberger said one of the things is something called cross-cluster search. And that will give CISA a even deeper look at health of agency networks and will come in handy actually just recently uh, uh, during the recent cyber threat something called open ssl3 which was considered a high risk vulnerability what that gives us here at the CISA federal level is object level data visibility into the dashboards so as of this moment we have about 20 dashboards out of the 78 that we have this object level data visibility. So starting several days ago, last Friday, we were able to then with that object level data, deep dive down to what was being scanned. With that, we were starting to look for the occurrence of OpenSSL version three, as well as the legacy version with the heart bleed. Altensberger says CISA expects to expand this capability more agencies in 2023 because it actually provides this level of automation of information collection that will actually accelerate how agencies, if they have a vulnerability, recognize it and remediate it and again, reduce those risks. Additionally, CISA will upgrade all the agency dashboards to version 6. They have a new service under the dashboard as well that's coming to help identify when a product is end of life or getting close to the end of life, again, so they can replace it and reduce those cyber risks. And in fact, Tom, you, some people may have missed this, but CDM actually has a new program manager. A gentleman by the name of Matt House has replaced Kevin Cox just about a week or two ago. And he actually offered a little insight at this FCW conference that we covered around the CDM program, whereas it's going in a couple years. And he says the focus is to continue to operationalize the investments, give value to driving visibility for agencies to enhance their ability, again, to combat cyber threats. I think the only constant is change, in the, especially in this program. So, you know, we've got a lot of emerging requirements, a lot of requirements that are becoming clearer in terms of expectations that we want to, con- you know, continue to on-ramp and integrate with our existing body of work and our rhythms of doing business. We want to kind of have a well-defined vision for the future. Where, where, where do we want the FSEB to, to be in five years? What does that look like? How do we help them get there, given kind of what we're dealing with now in, in terms of major efforts across the space related to EDR and, and zero trust? We're still waiting more of how he envisions CDM going. Of course, he's only been there a couple of weeks, so he still needs, needs to get his feet wet. But we know, Tom, CDM has a ton on its plate over the next year or so. And Jason, will CDM as an architecture, as a product set, fit into the zero trust era? Right. We hear all about zero trust. It seems like all people want to talk about when it comes to uh, cybersecurity. And without a doubt, CDM will provide a, a lot of important capabilities to any agency's zero trust architecture. In fact, the Defense Department did some research and found some important data of overlap between CDM and Zero Trust. Randy Resnick is the director of the Zero Trust Portfolio Management Office in the DOD's CIO's office. From our quick high-level analysis, we assess that up to 57 of the 152 total number of ZT activities that we have in Zero Trust correlate with the tools and solutions offered by the CDM program. Most importantly, at initial look, we believe approximately 50 of the total 91 target-level activities very well may all already be addressed by either the tools that exist today or that are on your industry roadmaps, which is excellent. So um, you're well on your way to achieving zero trust just merely by implementing the CDM roadmaps and the tools existing today. 
Now, Resnick was clear this is comparing DOD's zero trust architecture and their seven pillar roadmap to CDM. But listen, Tom, there's enough similarities between the civilian and DOD zero trust efforts and shows just how much progress agencies can and have made and how quickly they can make it around zero trust by leaning on CDM. And this is really why I think so many people believe CDM is really hitting its stride after a decade. And happy birthday to CDM, Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Thanks so much. My pleasure, Tom. And be sure to check his reporter's notebook at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. 
Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations on on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, And so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. 
And we left the meeting and we were walking back to the office and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper sticker sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? And I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. 
Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Kristen here, reminding you not to do things. What I mean is, with same-day delivery for everything from gifts to groceries, you only have to do the things you want to do. To not do the other things, visit shipped.com. That's S-H-I-P-T dot com.